Just so you know, the clock is broken. That has given me complete liberty by God's sovereignty to speak as long as I need to. I'm semi-joking. The year was 1990. The country was East Germany. I was 16 years old, and I found myself at roughly 2 a.m. in the morning on the street, having no idea where to go. You see, I was over there, specifically in East Germany, in East and West Berlin, only for a day. I was singing with about 14 others, and we were touring um, what we now look back on as an extremely historic time. Communism, you see, the wall, had just fallen, East and West Germany would soon be together, united as a country again. But I was in a place, too late and too early in the morning, you could say, that I had no idea where I was supposed to go. I had a guide and a tour that was one day long, and I had somebody that basically would be my host. And for whatever reason, I had lost sight of my host, who had gotten off on a bus stop prior to the one that I now landed and realized that I was alone. So many things can strike fear into a 16-year-old's heart. That certainly was one of them. I get off the bus thinking that the bus had never turned prior to its next stop. I run back as fast as I can to find where my host is who for whatever reason didn't realize that he was supposed to take me with him. It's a side story I won't go into right now. And I look for him, and I look and I see nothing and no one. It's completely dark, and there is basically a bar that is open on the corner, and so I'm on the four corners. There is a bench that is off to my left, and I sit down, and I ponder the predicament I'm in, not really knowing as a 16-year-old what predicament I'm actually in. I had no idea where to go, and I didn't speak the language. Nothing that was safe or seemed safe was open. And realizing that my host was nowhere in sight, I did not know how this was going to pan out other than me dying. Fear had pretty much overwhelmed me, so I did what any self-respecting 16-year-old boy would do. I curled up on a bench and cried. I literally curled up on a bench and cried. And I said, God, help me. God, help me. There was no light at the end of the tunnel for me. And so we come to this passage in John 16, and the disciples have been told by Jesus that, hey, I'm going away. I'm going away. And yet again he comes, and I'm going away. And the disciples must be feeling at this point and getting caught up in, in their inner monologue and sometimes their outer monologue saying, like, why are you going away? Why are you leaving us? That there was fear and that there was a desperation that was sitting in. And so the tone of the moment, as we are in the last hours of Jesus' life on earth, must have been one where they were captured with this fear so paralyzing that they didn't know what to say, what to do, how to act as they were being told by Jesus specifically of what was to come. And so they're here trying to process this as their fear is enveloping them, and they have no idea 
and they are lost, not able to speak the language that Jesus is speaking, and sometimes interjecting with words and thoughts that don't even make sense. And so this is where we find ourselves in this passage. They could not see the light at the end of the tunnel, that God would be ever-present with them and in them. Yes, Jesus would leave, but he would not leave them alone. And this passage shows us in chapter 16 that God sends us his Spirit to bear witness to Christ and to keep us in Christ even as the world opposes Christ. And to kind of give you a, a brief overview here in the last few verses of 15, in the beginning verses of 16, because it really sets up where this passage really finds its root. And toward the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16, it's set up this way that Jesus lets the disciples know that they will be hated by the world. This is in verse 18 in chapter 15. And then they would be persecuted in chapter 20, in verse 20. And thus they should focus on loving each other by serving one another. We see that echoed in John chapter 13 and in 14, being in the vine, staying rooted in him in chapter 15. But not only that, but he will not leave them alone to bear the burden of the hate or the persecution, nor will he leave it up to themselves to manufacture a love for each other. Jesus is smart enough to know that it's not like we naturally just love each other. So even the command to serve one another, to wash each other's feet, and to love each other in a whole new way that is more than just external, but that comes from internal. Jesus knows that's not going to happen naturally. And so he says, I will not leave you alone, but I would send a helper. And then in the last two verses of chapter 15 and the first verse of 16, Christ's intent was to send them the helper for two reasons. Two reasons. Number one, at the end of uh, chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, it was to bear witness about Christ. He was going to send them the helper to bear witness primarily about Christ. And in the first verse of chapter 16, he says to keep them, he's sending the helper to keep them from falling away. Falling away from what? The gospel truth, the things that Jesus has told them. And so the helper is being sent so that they would stay in their lane, that they would stay on track with what he's been teaching them. Now, however, this gift of the helper comes with the reality that they will have targets on their back, as we see in verse 2 of chapter 16, that their fellow Jews will look to put them not only out of the synagogues, but it will be of service, they would say, something that people would applaud as a service if they actually killed them. I don't know about you, but as I'm listening to this, and if I were a disciple and Jesus is speaking... I would have been like, <laughs> wait a second. R rewind and say that again. You're going to give us a helper, right? A helper? And we're going to be killed. H help me balance the two there. How am I supposed to respond to that? But Jesus goes on. Because the irony is Jesus tells them that they do this precisely, those Jews who put them out of the synagogues, they do it precisely because they don't know the Father nor the Son. In fact, they hate the Father and the Son. And this would foreshadow a common reaction to bearing witness to Christ as the Spirit would do through them. And then as Jack read, as we go to the end of chapter 16 and verse 32, it says, Jesus lets them know that they will be scattered and leave him alone, and that tribulation awaits each one of them. And so in chapter 16, 
With Christ beginning by saying, hey, you know what? You're going to be persecuted, kicked out of the synagogues, you might die. To, you're going to be scattered because I'm going to go. Those kind of bookends don't paint the most wonderful picture in the world. However, it does paint the picture of the why the Helper is coming and why the Father, through Jesus, is sending him to his disciples. So let's read in chapter 16, starting with verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks, where are you going? Now, if you remember... Um, within the last several weeks, you've, you've heard that actually specifically stated. It would almost seem that Jesus is contradicting what both Peter said and what Thomas said in chapters 13 and chapters 14. But there's a difference. In chapters 13 and chapters 14, they're asking this, but they're not tracking with Jesus. Jesus is basically saying, okay, w- wait a second. I'm now telling you where I'm going, and this is the actual time when your question is appropriate. I don't know if any of you have ever taught, and the students have sat there and tried to kind of thwart what you were teaching them because they wanted to ask questions that you will deal with down the line, but this is not the time to ask that question. Yes? Amen? Yes. If you have children, you understand that. If you're a teacher, you probably understand that daily. But Jesus is saying that, hey, now is the time to ask this question, where am I going? Because now I'm prepared to tell you because what I've said before and what I'm going to tell you now. And so Jesus is saying now is the appropriate time. He's not contradicting what has been said in 13 and 14 through Peter and Thomas. And in verse 6, he says, but because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage, key in on that, it is to your advantage, and we'll talk about that, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, and we will look at that specific word helper as well a little bit later, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So let's go back. God sends us the Spirit in order to bear witness to Christ, as it says in 1527. Though this is set up in the last verse of 15, as he puts feet on this currently, we need to understand how the Spirit's going to bear witness through us. But before we do that, we have to understand how Jesus, in this passage specifically, describes what the Spirit is for, because this will help them understand how they are then going to bear witness to the Spirit. Because at this point, we live on this side of the cross, and as those saved and who are in Christ, we know that God's Spirit dwells in us. That God, by His Spirit, assures His salvation in us because He carries it through by His own means and through our body, in our spirits, that He has sealed us for the day of redemption. We know that here. But we have to look right now at the disciples who have no idea this concept. They've only known God, at least prior to this external understanding of going into a temple through the Holy of Holies, and that the priest would then do that for them. But now, as we know in the New Testament, that we are priests, that we now carry God's Spirit in us, that we can go to God face to face. This is and will be completely new to them. And so let's see what Jesus says here. In verse 9, he tells them 
that the role of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin. In reality, all sin boils down to not believing in Christ. We set ourselves up as God, we make our own rules and idols, and ultimately reject Christ and his atoning work. And it says this in verse 9. They do not believe in me. And we see this play out everywhere we turn today in society. Man loves living in sin. Man loves creating idols. Man loves rejecting Christ. If you're not aware of this, turn on the TV. We seem to invent a new sin every day that we can proclaim through the radio waves and the TV channels and podcasts on social media alike. And then he says in verse 10, the role of the Holy Spirit is also to convict the world concerning righteousness. Righteousness is that conforming to the good, perfect, holy, and true standard by which God demands we come to him. Jesus goes to the Father, as it says in verse 10, conforming perfectly to his righteous standard. Without God's or Christ's righteousness, we are soaking in sin and rejecting his standard for our own lives. And we see this play out trying to rely on our own works, on our own righteousness. Without Christ coming into our hearts, what we see oftentimes is people just serving and doing works, and serving and doing works, and serving the church and doing works. They may know scripture, they may sit in pews, it might be you, But right now, in your mind, or in people's minds who are looking at their works, they're trying to attain something that can only be credited to them by the Savior. And so the Holy Spirit is being sent to convict the world of what righteousness really is. They don't understand this. It is not external. It's something that is given to them. Apart from God and a heart-changing Christ, What the Bible says very specifically is that the best we offer to God is a bunch of filthy rags, as it says in Isaiah, that none of us, not one of us, seeks God. And in verse 11, it says the final thing, this third thing, this is the role of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world concerning judgment. At the end of the day, there are two kingdoms in play here. We have God's kingdom, which is ruled by Christ, and we have The world's kingdom, which is ruled by Satan. Man's eternity is at stake. Your and my eternity is at stake. Based on which kingdom and ruler we serve. And as for those who side with the ruler of this world, Christ states that their demise, along with their ruler, is a foregone conclusion. He's saying they are already judged. Now, I'm going to come back to verse 7 here to those two words I asked us to pay attention to. He states this, um, that sending the helper is to their advantage. Sending the helper is to their advantage. So let's look at that word helper for one second. The word is used as parakletos, and you might know that word in another form as paraclete, which means helper, or more, I would say specifically and directly, advocate. That word means advocate. Christ begins to spell out how God, our Trinitarian God, we know this God as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, will fulfill his redemptive purposes of our salvation. And so listen to how this sets us up as believers. This is why it's to our advantage. Picture this in your mind. When Christ leaves, we know that he will be our advocate in heaven, 
right, at the right hand of God. John uses, this very John who wrote the gospel, and 1 John uses this exact same word and, um, and relates it to Jesus. In 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, he says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you might not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a parakletos. With the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So after Christ ascends to heaven post-resurrection, he and the Father will also send an advocate to us. That is the helper. This is to whom he speaks, the Holy Spirit, as our helper or our advocate here on earth. He will actually dwell in us. He's pointing to the future event that will happen, but the disciples don't know that at this point. And so this is the setup here. We have an advocate before the Father who is in heaven, who is Christ Jesus. But he doesn't just stay there. God himself comes down and dwells in us and is now our advocate here on earth. It's like we're double covered. That's a beautiful thing. This is why it's to their advantage and it's to our advantage that Christ ascended to heaven so that he could send the advocate here while we walk this out on earth. This is a beautiful thing. So... What does this mean for the disciples? The picture is being set up as one of a heavenly courtroom where the Spirit, our advocate and helper, is convicting the world. What the disciples don't really grasp, but Jesus alludes to, is that he must leave so that the Spirit will now be in them. However, the work of the Spirit, as walked out as I just did in verses 8 through 11, will not change. So the Spirit's work, just because it leaves heaven and will convict those here on earth, it doesn't change just because it resides in us. What does that mean now then for the disciples? Christ is saying that they will be going forth with the help of God's Spirit to proclaim Christ through their testimony. And so in turn, God's Spirit through God's people will convict the world as they are faithful to do so. He's saying that as you now testify to me that my spirit through you will do the work it was intended to do and will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. That we are now a vehicle by which God and we cooperate with him and his spirit are going to be used to do so. And this was the disciples as they started the church. Now he doesn't tell them everything because they could not handle it as it says in verse 12. It was enough to tell them that they were they were wanted. They, were, they would be persecuted. And he was going to leave them. But Jesus says and assures them that the heartbeat of the Father will resonate through the Spirit and guide them into all truth. In verse 13. Speaking what the Father says and glorifying Christ along the way. Now this is important too. The Spirit does not add to the work that was already done on the cross. What Christ accomplished his life, his death, and his resurrection. And as he said on the cross, it was a finished work. It is done. So the Spirit doesn't add to anything that the Son did. The Spirit, through the disciples and through you and me, will merely point to the work of the cross, of what Christ accomplished. And it's that work and their response to it that is what is convicting that is what causes judgment. It is not us. It is not what we do. It is not how we do it. But it's God's Spirit working through us, working through the disciples as they proclaim the truths of the gospel that will do the work of the Spirit as it testifies to the work of Christ. This is important. 
Well, we know how this plays out for the disciples. We don't have to kind of imagine this. The good side of being on the side of the cross and having a cannon is we see this in Acts. And so that in the mere few hours, we watch Peter, who at this point does not have the spirit indwelling in him, looking on from afar at the trial of Christ. And what do we know that Peter does? He cowers in fear. Three different times he rejects knowing who Christ is. The third time to a tween. Like seriously, a tween. But what happens then in Acts chapter 2? After the Father ascends, after the Son ascends and is next to the Father, they send the Spirit down. And amazing things happen on the day of Pentecost. And then what does Peter, who cowered merely days before, do? He gets up, has a boldness, proclaiming the gospel not to one person, but to thousands. And it's through that gospel message, through him pointing to the work of Christ, that people are cut to the heart. We see this. So in Acts chapter 2, at the end, in 37, you see that. It was cut to the heart. And what happens? The Spirit then draws men unto Christ. 3,000 respond by repenting and being baptized that particular day. The Spirit is doing what it was sent to do in and through the disciples, and that was just the beginning. Read Acts. Watch how they continue. Carry the name of Jesus, as it says, wherever they go, proclaiming Christ, being used by the Spirit to speak to the word of the cross. That is the goal of the Spirit. So as Christians, we are now filled with God's Spirit, and this is our internal guide. As Christians, we repent from our sin. We realize that the Spirit has shown us our unrighteousness and placed our faith in the work of Christ alone who took the entire penalty of our sin and clothed us in his righteousness. So when God's judgment is handed down, our kingdom alliance has changed, and God's spirit, which convicted us, now dwells within us to secure us as we point to Christ. If you ever question, and this was something I dealt with growing up, I grew, I grew up in different uh, church circles um, who had different understandings theologically, and I remember being and thinking, being challenged and thinking continually, am I filled with the Spirit? Am I filled with the Spirit? And whenever I'd ask that question to those who were around me, it would be, are you doing this? Are you doing that? What are your actions? Maybe it was tongues. Maybe it was healings. Maybe it was seeing God move in some miraculous ways. And though I don't specifically discount that, what I was never pointed to was the reality of what was coming out of my mouth. Were my actions in my life, were my words pointing to the work of Christ? The primary goal, again, of the Spirit of God is that when He dwells man, He points to the work of Christ. If you want to know if you are filled with God's Spirit, I ask you, to question yourself and say, am I pointing in my life and my actions and my words to the work of Christ? That is how you know that the Spirit is living in you, that he's resonating in you, that he's accomplishing the purposes that the Father sent him to accomplish. 
if that is not the case, and that is not happening in your life, then the awesome thing is that God's Spirit will freely dwell in you as you profess Him as Lord. That is the good thing. So if we want to see our church in the coming months and in the coming years know that we are filled with God's Spirit in here, it will be because His people are proclaiming Christ and pointing to Christ. That is a church that is filled with God's Spirit with people who are obeying and vessels for God's use. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, Paul is addressing the Corinthians and he says this, kind of puts it in a different light, in a different word picture. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, conviction. To other, a fragrance of life to life. The Spirit does bring life at the end of the day. And so the second point, and I will really go through this pretty quickly. God sends us the Spirit in order to keep us in Christ. Verse 16.1 says to keep us from falling away, specifically. Why would they fall away? They obviously have experienced Jesus. He's led them in many different ways. He's been their security. They've confessed Christ at many different times. They have confessed to understanding more of what he's saying um, consistently. And even at the end of John chapter 16, they do it again. He says this, a little, a little while, and you will see me a little longer, and again in a little while, and you will see me. Some of the disciples said to one another, what is it that he says to us, a little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father, they didn't understand what he was saying. They were often bold, but sometimes bold for the wrong reasons, I'll just say that. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from me. He's quickly saying, hey, what's coming up here is going to be the fact that I am going to be crucified on the cross and then you will not see me any longer. And so for a period of time, three days, you will have sorrow, and it will be great sorrow. Why will it be great? Not just because Christ has died, but because they will hear a cacophony of voices rejoicing that this man Jesus is dead. This will foreshadow the reality of what was to come and who they were to face in the coming years in their life as they profess Christ. But then that sorrow will turn to joy as Christ will rise again and will appear to them specifically and ultimately will be filled internally as he sends his spirit. And I ask you this question, does the joy of Christ's resurrection, which we will collectively celebrate in less than a month, does that still bring you unspeakable and unshakable joy? At the end of verse 22, it says, no one will take your joy from you. That was convicting to me as I read that. Do I still have joy in the resurrection? Do I still have joy amidst the opposition now that I know Christ's Spirit dwells in me to proclaim His name? Jesus is pointing to the reality that when the Spirit, again our advocate on earth, is sent to them, they will know the heart of the Father and be able to ask for anything in Christ's name, our advocate in heaven, 
who is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. They no longer have to guess what to ask for, but will know what pleases God and can, and can ask anything according to spirit that dwells within them. He goes on to, to speak in the last verses. I've said this to you in figures of speech, and he goes on through discussing what that means, that because the Spirit resides in them, that he, they are allowed to now plainly go to the Father and then ask in his name because he will then be their advocate at the right hand of God. They're allowed to do that at that point. They don't understand that now because he's physically before them. And then the disciples, this kills me, the disciples say in verse 29, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus says in verse 31, Do you now believe? Almost really? Do, do you really get what I'm saying here? Are you really tracking with me? Are, you, are we here? And he says this, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it is come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. We know that the disciples did not get it. Why do we know that? Because Jesus then follows that up with, guess what? You're going to be scattered. If you really got what my purpose was, you probably would stick by me. But the reality is, when the shepherd is struck, the sheep scatter. They don't stay with them. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. That's the reality. They all abandon Christ. So clearly it will not be the efforts, their best efforts, that keep them in Christ. They, and we need God's Spirit to do that. We need God's Spirit to keep us in Christ. We face opposition. We face tribulation. But it's by God's Spirit alone that we're able to stand firm on the rock and proclaim His truth to a dying world. Our decisions to follow Christ are well and good, but amidst persecution from others and persecution from within, we are a sad mess. <laughs> That's the reality. We are, as Robert Robinson wrote, and we sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That sealing is done by God's Spirit within us. We see this, as Paul says this in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We can't stay in him, rooted on the rock, without the Spirit of God, sealing us in him. But we should rejoice in him. Not because of the opposition we face. Obviously, we don't like to see people when they turn away from God. But even more so, it's more discouraging when we have an opportunity before us, yet we feel insecure in our opportunity to proclaim Christ by his Spirit. So I ask what circumstances or situation in your life has so enveloped you that your soul is filled with sorrow and the work of Christ has grown dim. This passage is great for us as we come upon Easter, celebrating his resurrection, the reality of a spirit being sent to us 
because of that. Ask for God's Spirit to illuminate, to shed light on the work of Christ that you may be encouraged and emboldened. The comfort we have from the Spirit is not insufficient. It is totally sufficient in and through us to bear witness to Christ and to hold us fast in a world that runs roughshod on the wide path to destruction. I'll close with this. In my late teens, actually it was my early 20s, I received a phone call from my mom. I was living with a friend and his family at the time, and he, she told me that a childhood friend of mine that I had played with every day for, uh, I don't know, probably 13 years prior to me moving, she shared with me that he had passed away. We knew that he was sick. He was quite thin and small for his age all of his life. He w- was dealing with some issues. And I remember receiving that phone call. I sat there in a the kitchen by myself, and I thought about the gospel. He had moved away to Maryland, so I didn't have any easy access to him, and I just wept. I wept, and I wept, and I wept so much and so hard that their family dog started jumping on me like something was wrong with me. (laughs) And let's get real, something was wrong with me. Why was I so sad? My sadness did not come at the loss necessarily of him, though that was very saddening in and of itself, I admit that. My sadness came from the fact that I I did not proclaim Christ to him that God's Spirit did not resonate in me so much that I wanted to point him to the story of Christ. I said to myself, never again, God, how to become fervent in knowing you so much so that I am not afraid, embarrassed to have the Spirit work so much in my life that I would proclaim Christ to my friends. In school, in my workplace, to those to whom God has put me in contact. God has placed you specifically for his design in a place to witness to his work. This is a great thing. This is God is using you. This is you have purpose and intent. And that starts with God's Spirit in your life, quickening your body from life, from death to life, and that you would then point to Christ with that same message so that others can experience that same joy. That is why the sorrow turns to joy. That is why a Spirit is with us. And that is why we can have hope, knowing that others can too share in the experience of being with Him one day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we consider the last hours prior to you going to the cross in the book of John. We thank you that it was for the joy set before you, you did so. And Lord, you did not leave them alone, nor do you leave us alone. But you have sent your spirit to dwell within, not just to sanctify, purify, and attest to the work of Christ in our hearts as we profess that by faith, but that we too would be a voice piece, that we too would point by your Spirit's prompting to the work of Christ to those around us, wherever we are.
Lord, wake us up for our own personal worship of you and that we would be sent into the world to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.